Welcome to the About Her podcast. I'm your host, Abigail O'Neill. In this week's episode, I chat with Abigail Dodds about feminism and the transgender movement. We will address a number of questions and concerns throughout the episode, including questions like, is it sinful or wrong to consider oneself a feminist? Has the feminist movement advanced in recent years, and if so, how? And how do we rightly or biblically empower women, especially on issues where women are being mistreated or misrepresented? In addition to these questions, we will also address two events and or articles that made their way into the public eye this past week. First, as some of you may be aware, several days ago, USA Today published an article identifying Dr. or Admiral Rachel Levine as one of USA Today's Women of the Year. USA Today considers this award, quote, a recognition of women across the country who have made a significant impact, end quote. You may be wondering, why is this significant and why are we addressing this specific article on the podcast this week? Well, let's learn a little bit more about Rachel Levine. USA Today also writes, quote, Levine, age 64, is a trained pediatrician who became the nation's highest ranking openly transgender official last March when the Senate confirmed her as Assistant Secretary of Health, end quote. Put simply and bluntly, Levine is a biological male who identifies as a female. In Thursday's episode of The Briefing, that is the episode that was released on Thursday, March 17th, Dr. R. Albert Moeller Jr. stated, quote, this isn't a woman. This is a man claiming the identity of a woman, claiming the name of a woman. And we are looking at the confusion in our society, reaching the point where we are being told by USA Today that we are to celebrate this particular woman as identified by USA Today without qualification in terms of the title of this award, end quote. I am not Dr. R. Albert Moeller Jr., nor do I attempt to be so in this episode. That being said, I do highly encourage listening to his analysis of the event from a Christian worldview. But the publication of this article on USA Today is an incredibly significant cultural moment, and I do firmly believe that we ought to address it also here on the About Her podcast. This cultural moment decisively communicates our culture's definitions of manhood and womanhood. Just consider the implications of these words stated by Admiral Levine. Quote, We need to be welcoming and celebratory of women of all aspects, of all sizes and shapes, and we need to work towards that compassion for all women and not put such an emphasis on thinness and appearance. I think that we need to work as a culture in the United States, but also globally, to be more compassionate and more accepting of girls and women, no matter their size and shape. End quote. Hmm. Let's consider for a moment another significant cultural moment, and to do so, let's read a few headlines taken from articles published over the last several days. First, the Washington Post. Leah Thomas becomes first transgender woman to win an NCAA swimming championship. The New York Times, Leah Thomas wins an NCAA swimming title. And for this one, let's also look at the subtitle, which states, With her victory in Atlanta, Thomas, who competes for the University of Pennsylvania, became the first openly transgender woman to win an NCAA swimming championship. And then finally, USA Today states, Penn swimmer Leah Thomas becomes first trans woman to win NCAA swimming championship. How are feminists responding? Why are feminists split on the topic? And most importantly, how should we as female believers respond to these headlines and to these events? That's exactly what Abigail Dodds and I will address in today's episode. 
Much to God's credit and not to my own, this interview with Abigail on feminism and the transgender movement was already scheduled months ago for Friday, March 18th. Just hours after Rachel Levine was deemed USA Today's Woman of the Year, and just hours after Leah Thomas was awarded the title of first transgender woman to win the NCAA Swimming Championship. Extraordinary timing. Of course, Abigail and I were only able to scratch the surface of this issue in our one hour long interview, but I remain humbled and thankful that God extraordinarily provided Abigail Dodds to help us here in the About Her community begin to process and interpret the significant cultural moment. Additional resources for further study and consideration will be provided in today's show notes. One final point before we dive into our conversation with Abigail. Abigail and I recognize that Rachel Levine and Leah Thomas are very real people who also bear the image of God. And in speaking about these events that have unfolded in the course of the past week, we in no way seek to belittle them as image bearers. Instead, we seek to speak truth with grace. We seek to humbly evaluate these events and to offer a loving Christian evaluation. And we believe a truly loving Christian or spirit-led response to these events is a response that agrees with and promotes God's original design for manhood and womanhood. It is this design, and only this design, that will absolutely promote what is truly good and what is truly beautiful in our society. And it is in this spirit of humility, grace, truth, and biblical conviction that I begin today's conversation with Abigail Dodds. Abigail is a wife to Tom and a mom to five great kids. She is a regular contributor at Desiring God and author of Atypical Woman and Bread of Life. She also writes frequently for her own blog, hopeandstay.com, and is a member of Bethlehem Baptist Church in the Twin Cities where her husband Tom serves as an elder. In her free time, Abigail is a baking enthusiast, a gardener, and as she says, a mediocre knitter, but I'm sure she is wonderful at knitting too. Without further ado, let's chat with Abigail Dodds about feminism and the transgender movement. Welcome to the podcast, Abigail. I will obviously provide a professional introduction about you at the beginning of this episode, but is there anything that's maybe not included in your professional bio that you would like listeners to know about you? Boy, I'm not really sure. (laughs) There's nothing super, super interesting or earth shattering to know about me. I guess I really enjoy time in the kitchen, which is fortunate since I spend a whole lot of time there feeding people. Um, Although, you know, I didn't always love it. So I think it's one of those things where you grow to love the thing that you decide to invest in. And so that's true. I just really love, I love baking and cooking and making food for our family and for other people. And I really enjoy gardening. Hmm. Um, That's another hobby that I just could spend all my time on. But of course, (laughs) I don't have all my time to spend on it, but yeah, very much love it. And you are really into sourdough bread making, correct? Yes, that's right. When did you get into sourdough bread making? You know, I can't remember. I think it's it's probably somewhere around six-ish or maybe seven or eight years now. Wow, that's a long um, time. Yeah. So it's, you know, it was kind of before the big craze hit, <laughs> but after it was, it was already a thing but it was just more of a smaller thing. Mm -hmm. So there were plenty of resources for me to get into it, but it wasn't a massive craze when I got into it. So I actually kind of, it was a really fun moment to get into it because 
in some ways, I felt like I got to be part of spreading the craze, (laughs) which is really fun because it's so much fun. What made you first get into it when you first got started? Um, A friend sent me a picture. She knew I had just started baking bread. And so, and she knew that I kind of liked how pretty things are, (laughs) like making things pretty. And so she sent me this this um, actually an Instagram account of this gal named Min. And um, she is just an artist when it comes to her, any food that she makes, but she was, a, it just is and was an incredible baker. And I thought I have to figure that out. I have to do that. Yeah. And it just sent me on kind of a whirlwind of trying to figure it out. So, yeah. Well, I am mm-hmm. impressed by what I see on your own Instagram. So <laughs> you are doing a great job. On your blog, hopeandstay.com, you share a mission statement in your About Me profile. And this mission statement says, My mission is to draw myself and others to the reality that Christ is all and all is Christ's, so that one day we will be presented mature in Him to the praise of God's glory. What led you to create or to develop this mission statement? You know, I think it was just trying to look and see what it was that I was doing. I I was doing more and more writing. I was needing to figure out um, what writing I would would do and what writing I wouldn't do um, and kind of make sure I was focused. I was was trusting the Lord and the things I would say yes and no to. I was, you know, consulting with my husband and trying to do what made sense for our family. But I just realized that my deep impulse was, which I believe is from the Lord and from his word was to, for myself to be a mature Christian, maybe mature isn't like a really flashy word that people are really excited about, but I am so excited about that word. I, I so deeply, deeply long to truly be a mature Christian and not to be um, a childish, tossed about, unstable kind of Christian. I really want to be a mature Christian. And when I did a study in Colossians, and when I saw that like Paul's heartbeat was to help believers be mature Christians, like that was his whole mission. I realized how much he had matured me, obviously through his word. I mean, that is how we get mature and how much um, the spirit writing through Paul had grown me up. I mean, in so many ways. And I, I realized that that was why I wrote. I wrote because I wanted to bring other people along with me in that. And because there's so much, so many true benefits to maturity. I mean, right now, you know, not just in the life to come, um, just for your own emotional well-being, your own day-to-day happiness, your own joy, all those things, your own being secure in Christ in your own skin, um, that being mature in Christ was really the key to that. And that, and, and Paul so neatly outlines it in Colossians. And so I just wrote it down, I guess, for my own sake and for Mm -hmm. anybody who wondered like, what is she really about? (laughs) You know, communicates very clearly what you're about. Yeah. (laughs) I really like the phrase, Christ is all and all is Christ's. And I think this is an idea Mm. that you communicate very well in your book, A Typical Woman. But how does your mission statement that you've outlined apply to our conversation about womanhood? 
today? Does it apply in any way? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll go back to Colossians. So when I was doing reading on womanhood, I don't even know how long ago, over the course of my early, through my 20s and my early 30s, um, I was often dissatisfied with some of what I read. Certainly not all. There's good things out there. Um, but but there were some things that really rubbed me the wrong way, and I wasn't always able to articulate why. And so as the result of that, I kind of said, you know what, I'm just going to read the Bible mostly. I think I'm not going to read a ton on that because I just, it would kind of get me a little bit out of joint and it wasn't particularly edifying, but I couldn't always put my finger on exactly why. Um, And in, again, studying the scriptures and especially the book of Colossians, and having conversations with people in my church about it over and over, because you really can't get away from the male-female discussion. Um, and people asking me, like, what did you think of this book? And thinking, I do not want to go read that book. <laughs> I don't, I, but, you know, people wondering. And so trying to read it for the sake of people or uh, friends who just wanted to be able to talk about some of these things. And studying Colossians alongside that, uh, that the Christ hymn in that first chapter of Colossians is so powerful. It's it's just these five verses in that first chapter that basically give us this incredible picture of all that Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. By Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. It goes on and on. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, so what all is included in that all things? Well, certainly male and female. Certainly me, you know, I'm included in it. I was made through him and for him. He was before Adam and Eve. He was, you know, before the creation of the world. And it, it just helped me reframe some of my readings of Genesis and the creation account and um, the Old Testament. And, And it dawned on me at some point that if we do not remember that Christ was before the creation, that Adam and Eve, male and female, all those things were created through him and for him, that we will have an idea of what we were made for because we will but we won't be able to work it out rightly. So it's that whole Romans one idea. We'll, we'll know by the creation that there's a purpose, that God, there's a God, that he has made things a certain way, but without Christ at the forefront, we won't work it out rightly. Our thinking will become darkened. Um, and so I just, I realized also that some of the legalism that sometimes crops up in this conversation, I think was happening because so much of the talk about um, male and female, and fe- maybe especially female, I don't know, uh, was absent of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> and so um, it kind of just set me on a, on a track to think, think through those as biblically as I could um, with the Old Testament and the New Testament open. I appreciate that you recognize there might be a gap and you sought to fill that gap. And I have just gleaned so much from your writing over the last several years. 
And this next question I have asked several women who have been on the podcast, including Dr. Erin Shaw and Mary Cassian, Mary Moeller. But I continue to be encouraged by the answers that each woman provides. And so I will ask you the same question. And that is, why is it important that we rightly understand how God made men and women? Mm -hmm. And why is it essential that we look to the word of God itself as the ultimate authority on the subject of womanhood? Mm. It's a great question. I, I think if we don't rightly understand what God's made, we can't rightly enact what it is we're supposed to be enacting. If we can't rightly understand God as the authority, it's not just on the, it is on the subject of womanhood absolutely matters. But if God isn't the authority on all of life, on from, from the smallest thing to the biggest thing, if his word isn't the foundation and the thing from which we not only comes over us as an authority, but the ground on which we stand, we really will deconstruct and devolve. We will have no standard outside of ourselves by which to look and say, ask the ought question. So how ought I live? What should I do? Um, it does answer the who am I question, which is important. Who am I? It's not, I don't get the answer to that by simply looking inside my heart, you know, like my inner feelings. The answer to that really is external to me. It, it's located in what God has spoken me to be, and he's spoken me to be by his word, a woman. And that's spoken in the physical creation. He speaks and he makes things and he made me and you and whoever's listening, either male or female. And he also speaks sentences and he speaks paragraphs and letters and poetry. And those are written down for us. So whenever God speaks, we listen, whether it's him speaking our bodies into existence or whether it's him speaking um all that he speaks in his word that was written down for our instruction and for our edification and our rebuke and our upbuilding and, and all the things that the word does, we listen because without it, the ground beneath us just disintegrates. We have nowhere to stand. Mm -hmm. We only have ourselves then and one another to look at. And, mm -hmm. and I think anybody who spent any time looking to themselves to find ultimate reality can attest that it's pretty hopeless. <laughs> Your words are so timely, and I know that we will circle back to some of what you just said here in a couple minutes. But before we get to that point, in your book, A Typical Woman, you write, When we understand being a woman as a full reality that is in our fingers and toes, as much as it is in our wombs and breasts, we begin to see that we must read our womanhood both in the text of Scripture and in the text of our lives through the cross, through Christ himself. Why is this essential, and what does reading our womanhood through the cross look like? Well, again, I think what it, what it means partly is that Christ's death and resurrection is not so, just some spiritual thing that happened to gender-neutral people. Christ's death and resurrection raises us to new life, not as gender-neutral Christians— 
who are just like spiritual without any, um, without bodies, without, without, um, sex, rather he raises us to new life as new men and new women. And so Mm -hmm. that's why it's important because I think sometimes we get into this, almost like this gender neutral spiritual realm that goes so far away from, um, from the reality of, of what we've been made to be that it's as though, um, male and female doesn't exist. And we don't want to say that somehow, um, male and female is more important than, than the cross or something like, I I guess what I'm saying is I'm anticipating somebody saying, well, what about Galatians where Paul says there is no male or female for we're all one in Christ. And I would say, absolutely. That's true in the sense that being male or being female cannot keep any of us from coming to Christ. Like Mm -hmm. my womanhood isn't a hindrance to me being a son of God. Mm -hmm. So my womanhood isn't a hindrance to me being found in Christ, the perfect man. But I think that verse can easily be misinterpreted to act as though, well, male and female don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. We know that's not what Paul's saying because he says in that same verse that there's no longer um, Jew or Greek, uh, slave or free. And yet in the, in the text, Paul also, he, he's not saying Gentiles don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much writing does he spend after that still addressing Gentiles and Jews? Our, our ethnicities still exist, but they aren't, um, they can't hinder us from becoming Christians. My being a Gentile doesn't uh, prevent me from being found in Christ and being one with all of Christ's people, including Jewish people. So I think we just need to get our head on straight about what Paul is saying and remember that um, the cross does raise us as new creations and as new creations that are male and female. In previous episodes, I chatted with both Mary Cassian and Mary Moeller about feminism and about the feminist movement. And Mary Cassian really helped to break down feminism as an ideological framework and then also provided a general timeline of events concerning each wave or phase of the movement. Mm. And much of our attention in this episode was on phase or wave two, largely because that's when the underlying ideology was most heavily developed. And in recent years, you have written several works that have helped (laughs) me to specifically understand feminism and its natural outworking since the close of the second wave. And I would love to just ask you a few questions on this topic. But Mary Cassian shared that there is likely an identifiable third wave, which emphasized Mm -hmm. a woman's right to freedom of sexual expression. And there are also secular sociologists who would say that there have been fourth and fifth and even sixth waves of the movement. So in your own research, would you say that there have been additional waves of the feminist movement? And if so, what has helped you to come to this conclusion? And I don't expect you to be a sociologist here. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. You know, I feel that I would probably be going above my pay grade to say (laughs) whether or not there have been uh, subsequent waves that could be, I guess, really easily defined I do think that where we are now, even right now in 2022, in the month of March, which I don't know when this will air, but 
is vastly different than where we were even five years ago. Hmm. And it's, it's certainly then vastly different than where we were 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think what you can't deny is that the rate of change has accelerated drastically hmm. with the onset or with the development of social media and um, just the way the internet and, and social media has changed discourse and the speed of discourse. And um, it, it has really changed things. And I, I do think there's a connection between the acceleration of say, the LGBTQ agenda and social media. I think that's had a massive influence on normalizing things that could have never been normalized that quickly prior. Um, So before social media, you know, you had shows on TV like uh, Friends or even, let's say, Seinfeld to a degree or certain sitcoms that were going out into millions and millions of people's living rooms and the shows aired once a week and they slowly chipped away at, at a lot of the, at a lot of Christian norms. They slowly, they slowly normalized um, homosexuality. I'm thinking of another show. I think it was called Will and Grace. Um, So I think uh, movies and sitcoms and things like that. And, and I wouldn't, I don't even think that was actually slowly chipping away, but compared to how fast things are moving now, that looks slow. But they did chip away at sort of a general sense of what's acceptable to even talk about and joke about, what's acceptable to sort of having your normal conversations um, in terms of what really are very sexually perverse lifestyles. And now with social media, it's like that on massive steroids all day, every day. Um, And so if you're a kid with social media, you are completely normalized to every type of sexual perversion. And so I and I do think that all relates to feminism in the sense that um, feminism in the 2000s and beyond, I would say, has definitely pushed for the acceptance of of an interchangeableness between men and women to the point that they were they have been very on board for the LGBTQ movement. I think almost properly speaking that movement mer- flowed out of feminism. I I don't know, maybe I, again, I don't want to speak above my pay grade, but from where I sit I think there's a strong connection between sure. feminism and the LGBTQ movement. But um, so I, I, there probably is a third wave. Um, I, I'll let other people say for sure whether they want to call it yeah. that. But um, <laughs> definitely the rate of change is lightning speed and it's, it's, it's whiplash and, and it's, it's horrible. I mean, to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah. Mary also said several times in that episode that she sees the feminist movement now turning in on itself. Would you Mm -hmm. agree with that statement? And why might that be a natural outworking of the feminist ideology? Right. It certainly is, because now you have factions within the feminist movement. You've got the the old feminists that are called the TERFs, um, the trans-exclusionary feminists, who basically they want LGB and then they want to stop. They just want uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, they don't want transgender. And 
it's, I think it's difficult for them to understand how a movement um, that in their minds sought to empower women, how could that movement basically erase women? And that's what transgenderism ends up doing because then you have men saying they're women and you've got men women winning competitions, you know, sports competitions, you know, uh, a, a man who is now identifying as a woman who changed his name to Leah um, is winning college swim meets now and breaking records all over the place. And, you know, you've got like a man on Jeopardy who is now saying he's a woman who's like the highest ranking Jeopardy contestant ever. And he's won more money than any woman, quote unquote, has ever won on Jeopardy. Well, I mean, he's a man. He hasn't (laughs) done that. Um, But what you see is kind of this erasure of women's achievements, because now that men are women, we find out they're actually quite a bit better at apparently being women than women are. So bummer, right? Like, who knew? But so you've got this huge conflict within the feminist movement. You've got mostly younger feminists who say, oh, no, we can embrace these trans, you know, they, they call themselves trans women. I, they're men. We can embrace these men as women. And then you've got older feminists saying, no, we can't, um, that this is harmful to us and it's not good. And they can't get along and they, they are devouring one another. And I do think that the logical problem, well, there's logical problems everywhere because sin doesn't make sense. So nobody in either side of those movements has the logical high ground, but I'm more obviously more sympathetic to the, the old feminists who are upset about transgenderism. However, I do think their blind spots are really a problem because they can't see that that this is the fruit of what they were after. They wanted a world where women could be interchangeable with men, where women could do exactly what men do, where women could say, I don't ever have to be pregnant. I can kill my children in the womb. There's nothing distinct about me or different from me from a man. And now what's happening is the men are saying, you know what? I can be interchangeable with women. You you say that giving birth isn't a female thing. Well, guess what? Not giving birth isn't a male thing. Now I can choose to give birth if I want to. So obviously they can't. But these are the crazy ways of thinking that are that are happening. And I do think there is a natural logical flow from old school feminism right into the transgender movement. Earlier this year, you published an article titled Feminism Has Consequences, and in the article, you lay out several consequences of the movement. Are there any other specific consequences that you would say you have noticed? Mm. Well, I mean, I mentioned kind of just these basic things that you see on the news, like the the male swimmer who's identifying as female, who's who's beating women, or... Mm-hmm. Um, the, the guy who is, I think he was just considered w- woman of the year, who mm-hmm. is a government official now in the health and human services or something. Um, so there's all these different public cases of it. But the, the worst, the worst part I get, well, who knows who could say what the worst part <laughs> is, but um, 
one of the really horrible pieces of this outworking of transgenderism as sort of a logical flow out of feminism is now you have social contagion happening among teenage girls. So when I was growing up, um, it's been studied that teenage girls are very susceptible to what they call social contagion. So basically, it's that all your friends are doing it, or there's some reason to do something because it's going to earn you some kind of social capital. And so teenage girls are extremely susceptible to that, to that Mm -hmm. kind of peer pressure. And when I was growing up, the big problem was anorexia or eating disorders. Hmm. And I knew several girls who struggled with that. I know I knew several girls in college who had to drop out of college because they had severe eating disorders. Um, and I think that still exists, actually. Um, but you don't hear about it quite as much. And so, so the point is, young girls are susceptible to that. And now with this transgender movement, what a lot of young females are doing is rather than having an eating disorder, they're saying, which would be horrible also, they're saying, you know what, I think I'm a, a boy actually. Just they call it now rapid onset, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, and so you've got, I think the increase in uh, trans, trans identity among uh, teenage girls has increased something like 4,000% I read somewhere. Um, it's off the charts, the amount of increase. I mean, it is it is absolutely a social contagion. These are not girls who are actually gender dysphoric. These are troubled girls. These are girls who live on social media, who's who have been neglected by their parents and their teachers, and in my opinion, an abusive neglect to let them just go live their life with their phone and whatnot. But um, it, it is a horrible societal problem. And it's it's in many ways a hatred of the self. I mean, I don't think that's what's motivating it necessarily. I do think it's more like this is a way to be acceptable to everyone. This is a way to earn status or social credit or or escape whatever the difficulties of my life are. I'll go be a boy. And, uh, but what it leads to is massive self-harm, you know, because you're, you've got the, um, hormones that you take and the, the surgeries that they undergo. And you're going to end up with a whole group of girls who end up later in life realizing they are sterile, could be depending on how the hormones affect them, um, that they have, mutilated their body in such a way that they can't get it back. Um, It's just heartbreaking. And I do think that's one of the most horrible consequences of all is, is what's happening to this growing group of young women. We have so much still to chat about with Abigail, but you know just how grateful I am for the sponsors who help make these weekly podcast episodes possible. I would like to take a moment to thank this week's sponsor, our favorite audio Bible app, Dwell. Inspired by the psalmist in Psalm 119, Dwell's mission is to help you hide the word of God in your heart. 
and with over a dozen new recordings, hand-picked voices that will engage and inspire you in your favorite Bible translations, you are sure to increase your daily Bible intake or memorization of the Word with this unique app. Recently, I have been inspired by Dr. Donald Whitney and his book, Praying the Bible. While driving down to Louisville, Kentucky for an event at Southern Seminary this past weekend, I took advantage of the Dwell Mode feature on the Dwell Bible app and prayed through several psalms while driving. I found this to be a very easy way to put into practice several of the tips I learned from Dr. Whitney. And I just love that the Dwell Mode feature makes it easy to pray through scripture, to reflect on a particular text, or to memorize a verse or passage even while on the go. The Dwell app seems to accompany me everywhere lately, and I have truly seen the Lord use the Dwell app to help increase my love of His Word. If you desire to increase your daily or weekly Bible intake, your memorization of the Word, or if you simply want to start praying through the Bible too, I encourage you to consider creating a Dwell account. Much thanks to the Dwell Bible team, About Her Podcast listeners will receive a discount at sign up. To receive 10% off a yearly subscription or 33% off Dwell for Life, head over to dwellapp.io forward slash the about her. 33% off works out to a total savings of $50. So be sure to visit dwellapp.io forward slash the about her to uniquely enjoy the word of God with this special tool for the rest of this year or for life. Now let's return to our conversation with Abigail Dodds about feminism and the transgender movement. As you stated just a moment ago, in the last several days, there's been a new headline in the news about Woman of the Year, Rachel Levine, who is a biological Mm. male who identifies as a female being named Woman of the Year. And then within just a couple hours, the same day, Leah Thomas, who is another biological male who identifies as a female, is awarded a title that should be reserved for women. He's competing against women. So how should female believers, how should we think about these things? I mean, it's confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's frustrating. What should we think about these men who are stepping into female spheres and taking titles that should be reserved for biological women, but they're not, and our society is celebrating it? What should we think about this? Yeah. Well, I think we should... In one sense, we want to mourn for this very, very, uh, a man who's lost. You know, he is, he's lost. And we can pray for him and we can pray that God would do a miracle to save him and um, to cause him to repent and turn from the path that he's on. Um, I also think we need to be clear that his personal choice to act as though he's a woman is not confined to him, that it actually does harm society at large and women in general and men, probably everyone that I guess this, what he's doing is a, is a moral thing. It's an immoral thing, but it has moral consequences and those consequences reach far beyond his personal life. And so we ought to be thinking about uh, how do we protect the people around us? How do we protect our children? Um, How do we protect uh, vulnerable people? Because this is, it is harmful. 
And the most vulnerable people are children and also women. Um, and so, I mean, actual women. <laughs> so I think that's important to think about is we really do need to think about what we can do to protect women and children uh, from this because it, it, there are consequences and they're really bad. Mm-hmm. You've written a couple times on the topic of submission and how submission relates to our response. Mm-hmm. And in one article, you address the idea of an unholy submission and a better submission. So for mm-hmm. podcast listeners who are unfamiliar with this article, could you explain what you mean by the idea of an unholy submission and a better submission and how this relates to how we can respond to the events that we're seeing happening in our society? Right. Well, there is a deep irony in that there are a lot of Christians um, who would not in any way subscribe to the LGBTQ movement, uh, but they do have a problem with submission. So let's say they, they think in marriage, submission should just be mutual. It should not be a wife submits to a husband. So typically, you know, that's an egalitarian position. And yet, uh, so, so they don't like submission there. And there are a lot of people who don't like submission when it comes to all, all kinds of all kinds of ways that we might need to submit as Christians to human to other humans. So you know, a congregation submits to their elders and things like that. Um, but when it comes to the the transgender movement, you have entire groups of women, feminists even, who are very much about female power ultimately submitting to a man who says he's a woman, submitting to him taking over female spaces, submitting to, you know, in the case of this swimmer at Penn State who changed his name to Leah, submitting to having a man and having to undress in the same locker room as a man. These female swimmers are submitting to that. They are submitting to him. I can't imagine being that submissive. I have no category for a submission that is that blind. Um, and I'm a Christian submissive woman. <laughs> uh, but, but wow, the world is outdoing submission. It's just their submission is completely unholy. It is completely sick and perverse. And I think that's something to realize that as Christian women, We are marked, yes, by our submission, but by our submission to holy and right and appropriate things, like to our own husband, to our own elders, to God, most of all. And we do, but we are also very much marked by what we will not submit to. And we will not submit to sin. We will not submit to unholy perverse men uh, telling us that we have to go along with their sexual perversion. Christian women do not submit to that. And so I just think we got to keep our head on real straight here um, and know that Christian women are marked by their submission and by what they refuse to submit to. Mm -hmm. 
Let's say there's a female believer listening to today's podcast episode, and they have an opportunity to speak with a friend or a family member who would consider themselves a feminist, and they're frustrated by what they see in our society, see what's happening in our society. How can she graciously, because grace is so important, point this woman to truth and effectively communicate the dangers of the feminist ideology and then also communicate a better way of thinking about these issues and about womanhood, manhood and womanhood in general? Mm -hmm. Well, it's really helpful to ask questions. So, I mean, I would want to ask right away, like, well, tell me what you mean by feminism. You know, tell me what you mean by that term. And then I guess I would want to, because I'm, I'm guessing if she's a true believer, a true Christian, what she probably means by feminism is something like, well, you know, just making sure that women are, um, have the same rights as men or making sure that women are, you know, cared for and not mistreated or something along those lines is my guess. Um, she, so she may be saying things that you could affirm. You could say, well, I also think that women shouldn't be mistreated. Those types of things. I think it might be helpful, though, to just also ask questions like, well, what do you think um, the gatekeepers of feminism, how do you think they would define feminism? And when I say gatekeepers, you know, what I mean is, the, the women who run the organizations that sort of uh, represent feminist thinking or feminism in general, you know, the National Org- Organization of Women or, you know, you could even say Planned Parenthood to a degree. Um, but there, you know, there's been all kinds of, there's all kinds of groups and movements. And I know several years ago, there was a big women's march in Washington, D.C. It's kind of like the really big feminist thing to do. You know, you do this women's march. And I remember a lot of Christians saying, I want to do this as well. And there was a group um, called, I think it was called Pro-Life Feminists or Feminists for Life or something like that. So it was a group that identified themselves as feminists and also pro-life. And if you were going to be part of this march and you were a group like that, you had to register with the people who ran the women's march, the people who were putting it on. And they actually rejected this group. They didn't allow this group to come, this pro-life feminist group. And so I would just want to ask someone who says, oh, no, but I'm a Christian feminist. I would say, okay, but do the the real feminists think that you're a feminist? (laughs) Would they accept you? Uh, Because the answer is no, uh, they would not. And one analogy is, there's been a movement um, among some reformed uh, folks. It's called the Revoice Movement. And uh, they have put on a conference um, for people who are same-sex attracted or who identify as gay Christians or you know, lesbian Christians or bisexual Christians. But they still hold to um, not acting on that. So they're celibate. They're all celibate. So they're not affirming that you ought to go act on it, but they're saying, but that is who I am. I'm a gay Christian. And so, okay, the big question I have for that group, which is the same as for people who say I'm like, I'm a Christian feminist, is 
would any people in the actual community of gay people recognize you as recognize that as a legitimate way of, of describing what it means to be gay? And the answer is pretty much no. So I just think the language and how it's used in our world matters. You know, just because as Christians, we kind of want to say, oh, but I care about this. That's sort of the same as what they care about in some way. It doesn't really work to adopt the language of the world because the world doesn't recognize you if you truly are a Christian or are going to hold fast to things like being pro-life or being celibate. <laughs> it, it just, it doesn't work. Like the movement is what it is. And if you want to be part, if you want to be a feminist, there is one litmus test that the feminists have and it's, are you pro-choice? Um, if you are not pro-choice, I do not know a single card carrying feminist, whatever that means, who would accept you as a feminist. So I don't know. I think that matters. I don't know if that would be convincing to someone who really feels that somehow they need to call themselves a feminist or that they somehow need to redeem feminism. I think that's, I'll just say it bluntly, I think that's kind of a fool's errand. Um, I don't think that's what we're called to as Christians. Um, I think we have something much better than that. And I, I don't think it'll work because we aren't the gatekeepers of feminism. So <laughs> we need to be Christians. And um, that means that the feminists aren't going to like most of what we have to say. How can older Christian women, and by older I mean both in age and also in spiritual growth, continue to disciple younger women toward a Christ-centered or a word-centered perspective of womanhood? Because as you said, there are so many young women today who feel the pressure to just go with the flow, go with what their friends are doing, go with what society tells them or what they see on social media. So how do we ensure that this next generation of women is not easily swayed by the empty flattery or, I guess, by the false teaching of ideologies like feminism? Yeah. The, the biggest, biggest, biggest thing is, is nothing exciting or new. Well, I mean, it is exciting, but it's definitely not new. But it is that you have to start at home. Um, if you have children, you've got to start there. If you... And if you have a home church, which if you're a Christian, you hopefully do, it starts at your home church. It starts at the local level. And um, it's got to be, yes, word-based, yes, taught from the word, meaning you're, you're reading the word, you're reading the word alongside um, others, you're helping them to see what it actually says, and they're being... Uh, the younger generation is being exposed to all of God's word through good teaching, good classes at church, good, good kind of um, didactic discipleship. But it also has to be lived. Um, if if the young women in our churches have not seen any women living out their calling day to day, happy in it, not not perfect. I'm not saying like pretending to be chipper. I just mean a deep, genuine Christian joy, even, you know, not, not saying that there isn't any sorrows or things like that, certainly, but I just mean that, um, constant, steady, normal, lived out, um, Christian woman who defies 
a lot of stereotypes. Uh, and I don't mean that in the sense of like the, the woman power type thing, but what I mean is when you have real people around you who are really living their lives out as Christian men and Christian women, your, your, your purview is just bigger. You know, I've talked about my grandmother who was a farmer's wife, who was out working on the farm, who worked, who did all kinds of things. My mom, who we lived on, you know, a, a larger place with you know, a good amount of land. And she would be out with the chainsaw in the brush, you know, doing all kinds of hard work. I did not have a small view of what it meant to be, what it meant to live as a Christian woman. And it wasn't because she was out there saying, I'm going to beat the men. I'm going to make more money than them. She didn't, she was not concerned about that. (laughs) She was living her life and she was doing the work in front of her. And it was, had a lot of different facets to it. Um, but she was doing it as unto the Lord and she didn't buck the, the fact that she was a woman. You know, it was the reality of her life and is. And so I just think we have to be able to see it lived out. And, um, and, if, and if you haven't ever seen it, um, it is okay to look at books. That, that's, God can use you reading about women who did that. God can use all kinds of ways. If you didn't have a mom who was that example and that life lived out of, of what it looks like to be a Christian woman, there God can use all kinds of ways, and certainly the scripture and the examples there, to help you form. He has not left you as an orphan. He's going to give you spiritual mothers, even if they're spiritual mothers who've already died. Their lives are still there speaking to for you and and giving you an example. So, um, but we've got to, to see it, um, beyond just have it kind of like a list or, or something didactically taught. Um, we need eyes on it and someone walking with us. Absolutely. I have two questions that were submitted by podcast listeners following my first episode on feminism that I released in season one. And the first question says, is it wrong to be a large outspoken feminist? I see so many Christian women today who say that they are feminists. When does this become wrong? Yeah. I mean, going back to part of what I said before, um, it is not, it is not real helpful to judge the motives of people that we don't know at all. So I can't do that. But if that person were in front of me, I would just, I would want to ask, what do you mean by that? What do you, what do you mean by being an outspoken feminist? Outspoken for what? You know, I need the content of that word feminist (laughs) uh, as that person's conceiving of it. And so it is possible that the content of that word for any given person could be vastly different than how I define it. Now, I think that's very unwise and probably not a very Christian thing to do, to go around defining words the way you want to because you want to be a feminist because you have some affinity for it, even though that's not the way anybody else conceives of the word. I think that's incredibly unwise and not a very Christian thing to do because Christians generally try to communicate in ways that, you know, agree on large defined definitions of things. So when does it become wrong? Well, I mean, if it's pro-choice at all, that's wrong. (laughs) 
there's just no, not even a smidge of room for saying that killing children in the womb is okay. Um, there's not a smidge of room for even saying that um, for any kind of female empowerment that isn't uh, godly. So empowerment is a real thing. And as Christians, we actually want people to be empowered. But our empowerment is so different than the world's. Our empowerment is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. And that kind of empowerment looks like, well, it looks like death to self. Because that's what it is. That's how it starts. You die to yourself. And you're raised to life in the spirit. And that spirit-empowered new life doesn't live for itself. It lives for God. And so that's the kind of empowerment that Christians talk about. And if you're talking about any kind of empowerment that isn't that empowerment, I would say it's wrong. I would say it is worldly and it is wrong and it leads to eternal death. And so I would be very wary of that. The second question that was submitted by a podcast listener says, how do we rightly advocate on behalf of women in areas where we do see an unbiblical inequality? And I think you could look at that question from two sides of the spectrum. On one side, there being a legalistic view of womanhood. And on the other side being, I don't know if liberal is the right term, Mm -hmm. maybe worldly, we'll say worldly, a worldly view of womanhood. How do we rightly and biblically mm-hmm. advocate on behalf of women where we do mm-hmm. see an unbiblical inequality? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this is really important. I mean, it, it is important for women to know that they have agency. Uh, what I mean by that is one of the ways we do empower women by the spirit is to help them know that they have Um, not even the right, although they do have the right, uh, but they even have the obligation to stand up for themselves in cases where that's required. So uh, when someone is wanting to mistreat you or has mistreated you in some way, um, and I don't mean minor offenses, you know, because those, God says, it's a glory to overlook an offense. I mean, you have been harmed. Let's say you've been abused physically in some way. Um, Things are happening to you that are definitely uh, not okay. Um, It is right and good and necessary that women learn to stand up for themselves in those situations. And if even... Um, someone who says they're a Christian and says, oh, you know, don't worry about it. It was no big deal that that person harmed you physically or um, was sexually abusive or whatever. Just don't worry about it. Christian women need to be so tuned in to the fact that God hates that kind of sexual abuse. God hates physical abuse that she would have No, not even a moment of thinking, oh, well, maybe that was okay. You know, I I just hope and pray that women are so strong inside 
by the Holy Spirit that they would know immediately uh, that that person's out to lunch. Whatever they're telling me, that's not right. Um, I need to go to the police or to whatever. I need to take care of this and I will find people who can help me do that, not people who are making out like this is no big deal. <clears throat> so I just think, um, I think when God shapes us into mature Christian women, I'll go back to that unholy submission thing. When he shapes us into mature Christian women, uh, we really uh, do become strong in his strength. Uh, his strength does make us know how to say no. His strength helps us know uh, where we give our yeses and where we give our noes by his uh, Holy Spirit helping us and by what he's shown us to be good and what he's shown us to be wrong. We can discern the good from the bad. Um, and so I would want that for all Christian women, that kind of fortitude, that kind of moral clarity, that kind of spine, that kind of boldness to be able to say no. Um, yeah, that's what I would hope. Are there any particular resources you recommend on the topics that we have discussed today? Um, ooh, let me think. There are several good ones. Uh, one more recent one that came out, I don't know, maybe it was last year. Kevin DeYoung has a good book on uh, men and women in the church. Um, if you're just kind of wanting to, to look at some of the, the key texts and have um, a really wise pastor walk through them with you, Kevin DeYoung is great for that, and he doesn't avoid the hard texts. He helps you walk through them, and then he helps you see, why is this not just what God says, but why is this good? Why is this good for men and women in the church? Um, so I would definitely recommend Kevin DeYoung's book on that. I have a few closing questions that I ask every podcast guest, and the first question I always ask is, what are you currently studying in God's Word? Well, right now... I don't know if I would use the word studying, but I am just reading through the Bible and I'm in Job currently. And it is just a, an incredible reminder of uh, what it looks like to suffer and hold fast to your integrity in the midst of horrific suffering. And I'm just being very edified again and again by Job. <laughs> Are there any good books that you have read recently that you would recommend to female listeners? on any topic? Hmm, that is another good question. Um, you know, I have recently been reading some of the books that my kids have read, different kids series. So I don't, I don't know how helpful that would be to your listeners, but um, I don't know. I read a lot of C.S. Lewis uh, here and there. So um, I've, I've also been trying to plod through Out of the Silent Planet, which unfortunately I I'm struggling to get through as much as I love C.S. Lewis. It's a tough one. It's a tough read, but yeah. I'm getting there. Final question. What brings you joy outside of your salvation? So these are just your everyday enjoyments that are temporal, but they remind you that life is a gift from God intended to be enjoyed. Hmm. Well, I enjoy my kids. I think as my kids are getting older, my oldest is 18 our second is 16, our next is 14, um, and then our youngest is uh, eight, and we have an 11-year-old. I didn't want to miss anybody, but um, I just, it, everybody says it, but it is true. It does go fast, 
And I think just realizing how, how quickly and how fleeting those days with your kids are, um, has just really caused me to try and soak in the time that we have with everyone home and soak in these incredible people that have been given to us to help shape and mold and um, to just see what an amazing gift that is. I think it's so taken for granted and um, I've just been loving time with all of us together and enjoying it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and addressing this very timely and important topic. I have greatly admired your voice on these subjects for several years, and it was an honor just to chat with you. You show great grace, but you're also very honest, and I appreciate that. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Your questions were really good. Um, Yeah, they were very thoughtful and well done, so I I hope it's helpful. I am certain that it will be. I am confident that you will walk away from this week's episode with something, whether that be an increased understanding of the feminist movement, practical ideas on how to discuss these issues with fellow women, or a desire to keep learning. Let's be honest, you probably have a lot of follow-up thoughts or follow-up questions too. As I said in the intro of this episode, we barely scratched the surface of this issue, but I hope that we have helped provide a bit of clarity, some encouragement, and even a language to help you speak about the rapidly changing society we live in. If you would like to learn more about the topics we discussed in today's episode, I highly encourage you to head over to abigailoneal.com and to click on the About Her tab at the top of the page. I will have further resources listed and linked in the show notes of this episode. As always, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at the About Her Podcast or by email theaboutherpodcast at gmail.com. I would be happy to discuss today's topic with you. To answer any follow-up questions you may have, or even to help you get connected with a local church community if you do not already have one. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Of course, it is my desire to see these discussions of scripture, theology, and womanhood passed on in order that more and more women may feel equipped and encouraged to love and to live God's good design in their daily lives. I would love it if you would share this episode or the About Her podcast in general with the women in your life. If you enjoyed this particular episode and have a moment or two to spare, I would also so appreciate it if you left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is one of the easiest and most effective ways through which you can help spread the word about the podcast. I can't wait to chat more about God and his word soon. Have a great week.